Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another live edition of Monitor Monday. As we come on the air this morning, the death toll from the coronavirus is approaching 230,000 lives, and the number of confirmed cases in the U.S. is now more than 9 million. COVID-19 cases are rising in 47 states, and there are reports of hospitals buckling under the strain, a lack of beds and fatigue among frontline workers. All this comes at a time when the FBI is warning of imminent cyber attacks that involve ransomware against U.S. hospitals. However, hospitals will now face civil monetary penalties for paying ransomware demands. That's our lead story this morning. And standing by in New York with the details is Rack Monitor investigative reporter Ed Roach. In other news this morning, you're going to hear from Matthew Albright, Nicole Emanuel, Alan Fink-Samnick, and David Glazer. We begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Well, good morning, all. Today is another segment with lots of short updates. Let's start with an OIG audit released last week of St. Francis Hospital. Now, before I describe it, I just want to say that when I become king of America, my first proclamation will be that no two hospitals in the country can have the same name. There are 34 St. Francis hospitals in the U.S. But back to this St. Francis, which is in Peoria, Illinois. In the audit, the majority of the errors, once again, were due to admissions to inpatient rehab that the OIG's contracted auditor determined were not appropriate for Earth. And of course, the hospital adamantly disagreed with the auditor's findings. Now, you may have heard here before about these OIG audits and the objections from the hospitals about the results. At what point does the OIG start to question the quality of the work of their auditors? I'd say it's long past time for them to take a good hard look. At some point, Earths are going to start denying admissions for worthy patients, fearing these arbitrary denials, and then Medicare beneficiaries will be the ones paying the price with loss of optimal recovery. Now, last week, CMS also released a new um, COVID-related rule. In this one, they discussed coverage of COVID vaccine by Medicare. In a strange twist, the cost of vaccines given to Medicare Advantage patients will be billed directly to Medicare and covered by Medicare and not the MA plan. I guess CMS does not want to jeopardize the multi-billion dollar profit of these insurers by making them cover the cost of a $17 vaccine and its administration. Now, the rule also extended the CGR joint replacement bundle payment program to new DRGs that they established for hip replacement after a hip fracture. This change is retroactive to October 1st, which makes it doubly offensive. Not only was there no opportunity to comment on this, but then they enacted it retroactively after doctors thought that these patients were out of the program. CMS also released some data on CJR patients during the pandemic and compared to 2019 April, there was an 87% drop in volume. I'm wondering, really, in the midst of a pandemic, where those 13% of patients were actually able to get surgery. Now, moving on, as you know, 
it is always the responsibility of the billing provider to submit records when a claim is audited. Now, that's easy for, doctor base, for office-based doctors, right? They just send the chart. But it's trickier for hospital-based doctors whose billing staff must be able to access the hospital's EMR to get the records. But think about the radiologist who's submitting a claim for reading an imaging study that was ordered by a non for a non-hospital patient. Right? The patient's in the office, the doctor orders the test, the radiologist reads it. The medical records supporting that study are at the ordering physician's office. Well, last week, CMS announced they're going to be starting a pilot project that some MACs will be requesting the medical records directly from the ordering physician's office when they're auditing a radiologist's claim. Now, this should simplify things for everyone, but only if the MACs explain to the ordering physician's office why they're requesting the records. This will be interesting to watch. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the vice president of R1RCM, Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Dr. Hirsch is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Here now with a Monitor Monday rack report is healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. And good morning, Nicole. Good morning. Thank you. And happy Rack Monitor Monday. While the coronavirus pandemic is horrible and seems to be getting worse, COVID has forced small positive changes in the telehealth arena and maybe in the widening of the ambiguous definition of medical necessity, or as I call it, the undefined definition of medical necessity. Medical necessity is the backbone of rendering healthcare services. Without it, services should not be provided. Yet medical necessity is the most litigated topic in all of audits. I have a difficult time personally accepting that a RAC or MAC auditor could look at, for example, my grandmother's file and claim no medical necessity exists. My grandmother's 96 and relies on Medicare for her long-term care. Were an auditor to audit my grandmother's facility and find that she does not meet medical necessity for whatever reason, that would not be fair to her facility. And I hope that facility is getting paid for caring for my grandmother. Sometimes it comes down to the definition of medical necessity. All this is to say that medical necessity is in the eye of the beholder, much like beauty. Why then can rack and mac auditors who are not doctors, not first-hand treating providers, not nurses, or even sometimes LCASs, decide that medical necessity does or does not exist for a patient that they have never seen. Black's Law Dictionary has a super helpful definition of medical necessity. Quote, if not carried out, the patient's situation could worsen. For a patient's treatment found to be necessary is this specific type of procedure or treatment, end quote. The American Medical Association, on the other hand, has a more detailed definition designed to make it all the more confusing. Our AMA defines medical necessity as healthcare services or products that a prudent physician would provide to a patient for the purpose of preventing, diagnosing, or treating an illness, injury, disease, or its symptoms in a manner that is A, in accordance with generally accepted standards of medical practice, B, clinically appropriate in terms of type, frequency, extent, site, and duration, and C, not primarily for the economic benefit of the health plans and purchasers 
or for the convenience of the patient, treating physician, or other healthcare provider. I think both these definitions, Black's Law and the American Medical Association, fail to contemplate COVID. COVID has morphed the definition of medical necessity. Isolation causes more need for mental health services. All symptoms seem to be extenuated in a pandemic. Broken arms and busted lips are more serious when you risk getting COVID at a hospital. Medical necessity in the era of COVID is wider, seemingly lower hump, perhaps, to leap over. And CMS agrees, as Dr. Hirsch points out, on September 1st, 2020, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services published a proposed rule aimed at codifying a definition of what makes an item or service medically or, quote, reasonable and necessary, end quote, under the Social Security Act. When you do get audited, because you will, immediately look and see whether your claim denials were denied due to lack of medical necessity. Ask yourself, do you agree? Is medical necessity truly lacking even in a pandemic? If so, ensure that the RAC and MAC was CMS certified to review those certain CPT codes for medical necessity. CMS limits audits on medical necessity because of the vagueness of the definition. When auditors find no medical necessity, then providers need to push back. Please push back. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Nicole, very much. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner at the law firm of practice. And coming up at about 10 minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from Matthew Albright, Alan Fink, Sandwich, David Glazer, and reporting a lead story this morning, Ed Roach. This is Monday. It's November the 2nd, one day before the 2020 presidential election. And you're listening to a live edition of Monitor Monday. Stand by. Audits are a tremendous tool in the arsenal of payers and their contractors. Auditors often hide behind nuanced terms, such as reopening for good cause or medical necessity. That makes responding effectively to an audit challenging for healthcare professionals engaged in claims denial responses. Making an already difficult situation worse is that payers, and especially their contractors, have become more aggressive in their approach. Deploying heavy-handed tactics has drawn the ire of many in Congress and the healthcare community. An upcoming RAC Monitor webcast with compliance expert Sean Weiss will focus on creating a culture of compliance. That helps you and your facility establish best practices for policies and procedures as relating to payer requirements for billing, coding, and documentation of services provided. This webcast is tomorrow, Tuesday, November 3rd at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Register now. Here now with a Monitor Money Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. Good morning, David. What could be risky on a cold day? Good morning, Chuck. So before I get into my segment, I want to mention that I got an email on Friday from CMS, and the subject line was confusion assessment. I assumed it was a survey that I was going to eagerly take about maybe incident two billing or some other Medicare rule that flummoxes us all. But alas, it was actually discussing a totally different subject patient mental status. So, my bad. Two weeks ago, uh, during our pre-chat, Ron Hirsch and I were talking about an important question. What are the time limits that exist on a private insurance company's ability to reopen claims? 
Now, regular listeners know that I believe Medicare can reopen a claim for 48 months, which is a shorter time period than the six years that most people talk about, but still quite a bit of time. Now, Medicare's reopening limits don't automatically translate over to private insurers. So just how far back can a private insurer go? The answer has two main variables. The first is whether you've got a contract with the insurer. If so, that contract, or a manual incorporated by reference, is likely to contain the answer. And it's possible that the news is much, much better than you might expect. I routinely see payer contracts that limit the ability to recover an overpayment to 12 months. Why? I don't entirely know the answer, but I suspect it has something to do with the fact that insurers want to be able to definitively close their books. When the company is serving as a third-party administrator, or a TPA, uh, which is a company that processes claims on behalf of a self-insured plan, they have little skin in the game because anything that they recover is ultimately going to go back to the plan. Whatever the reason, there's a distinct possibility that your private contract has a one-year look-back. Now, if you don't have a limit in the contract, or if you don't have a contract at all, then the state statute of limitations is the only factor limiting the insurer's ability to recover overpayments. Now, if you do have a contract with the insurance company and it's silent, presumably your state's contractual statute of limitations will apply. If there's no contract, it's more likely a court would use the statute of limitations for torts, which are just general wrongs. Statute of limitations vary from state to state and also from contract to tort. And they vary quite radically, maybe from two years to ten years, with the most common statutes being around four to six years. So there are two big takeaways here. The first is that in a dispute, be sure to check your contract. It may prove very helpful. But the second lesson is even more important. When it comes to audits by a private insurance company, whether you win or lose is usually determined by the contractual negotiation and not by the facts and circumstances directly related to the overpayment. A well-negotiated contract can establish short limits on overpayment recovery and will give you clear due process rights for your appeal. A bad contract leaves everything to the discretion of the insurance company. In short, your appeal process starts not when a claim is denied, but when you sign the contract. So for the song, it's my understanding that when Timbuk3, and Chuck, I don't know if they're related to you, uh, maybe a cousin, wrote these lyrics, they were being ironic. They were talking about the risk of nuclear disasters. But if you want a future so bright that you have to wear shades, get limits on audits negotiated into your payer contract. So here's hoping the future is a heck of a lot brighter than 2020 has been. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredrickson & Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Here now with the very latest news on the social determinants of health is Alan Fink-Samnick. Alan also has a Monitor Monday listener survey, and good morning, Alan. Well, good morning, Chuck, and good Monday, all. 
Among the most effective funding initiatives for the social determinants of health are those where communities have stepped up to take care of their own populations. That effort received a big boost last week. Medline awarded grants of $250,000 each to 13 organizations around the U.S. that target community health. Big program winners were for breast cancer awareness, heart disease, and population health initiatives, including victims of domestic violence, at-risk youth, and individuals with dis developmental disabilities. The program spanned the U.S. and social determinants of health and also addressed food insecurity, isolation and socialization, education quality and access, plus health quality and access. Centers for Enriched Living of Illinois will enhance its virtual programming for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities so they can socialize amid the pandemic. Common Pantry of Chicago will provide grocery gift cards and disposable medical masks to families with remote learners impacted by the COVID-19 crisis. Cradles to Crayons, also of Chicago, will deliver hygiene starter kits to low-income families with newborn babies. Elder Care Lake County, Illinois, will provide older Americans with free transportation to and from medical appointments to promote health access and self-sufficiency. A safe place will help victims of domestic violence gain access to housing and counseling services. Kurtz Cafe in Illinois will expand programming to teach life and job skills to highly at-risk young men and women. It will also provide food boxes to over 1,000 people per week. Northern Illinois Food Bank will provide healthy foods to patients with health issues and at risk of chronic diseases. Casa Lake County, Illinois will recruit and train 75 new court-appointed special advocate volunteers to address the rise in child abuse and neglect courtesy of the pandemic. Feeding Georgia Families will support Operation Effort, a program that supports a drive-through food pantry, door-to-door -door food delivery, emergency food box shipments, and children and senior housing meals. Communities and schools and partners in education of Douglas County, Georgia, will deliver COVID-19 care kits to school-aged children of families struggling with unemployment and lost ages. wages. Gilda's Club of South Florida will expand Women of Color, Strengthened by Action, an initiative that raises awareness among breast health and encourage follow-up among women of color. Rutgers University Foundation in New Jersey will expand their educational health sessions on breast cancer awareness, physical activity, and nutrition within low-income communities. And finally, the Susan G. Komen, Oregon, and Southwest Washington will collect healthcare data among African-American communities to help reduce disparities and mortality associated with breast cancer. Each grant demonstrates the small difference or maybe larger difference one agency can make for their community. And more of these efforts are on the horizon. With hospitals still unable to obtain reimbursement under the ICD-10 CMZ codes, these small grants will make the biggest difference to enhance health outcomes across populations. This week's Monitor Monday survey asks, if you could advocate with CMS to approve one of the following ICT-10 CMZ codes, which would you fuse? Z59.0 homelessness, Z59.4 lack of adequate food and safe drinking water, Z59.6 low income, or Z60.2, problems related to living alone. All are critical, but let's see which are more critical to you. We'll return to the survey in a bit. Back to you, Chuck. 
Thanks, Alan. That was consultant and author Alan Frank Samnick. And as Alan said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Money Listener Survey later in this broadcast. Up next, Matthew Albright with our legislative update. The Monitor Monday Legislative Update with Matthew Albright is sponsored by Zealous. Zealous is a market-leading provider of claims cost and payment optimization solutions to price, pay, and explain healthcare claims. Here now is Matthew Albright. Thanks, Chuck. This past week, the Department of Health and Human Services once again pushed back the compliance date for the interoperability rule, this time within days of the rule becoming effective. Providers were required to allow for the exchange of certain types of medical data today, November 2nd, but HHS published a final rule last Thursday that pushes those requirements to April of next year, 2021. HHS explained that it delayed the compliance dates because hospitals' attention is still devoted to the pandemic, though the agency said it thought that the providers now have all of the technology in place to go forward with those requirements. And last week, CMS also published the final rule on healthcare cost transparency for health plans. There are two transparency rules, right? One that applies to hospitals, that was finalized a year ago, and the one finalized last week that applies to health plans. The transparency rule that applies to hospitals requires them to publish rates on 300 of their most used services and procedures, including negotiated rates that the hospital has with specific insurance plans. That rule has been contested in court by the American Hospital Association and others and is now going through appeal. Although the appeal hasn't been decided yet, skeptical questioning by the judges this month has led observers to believe that the case is not going to be decided in favor of the hospitals, and that starting this January, hospitals will have to publish negotiated and other rates for their services. Likewise, the transparency rule for health plans, finalized last week, requires plans to publish the rates they have negotiated with specific hospitals by January 2022. The rule also requires health plans to offer a consumer-oriented app where patients could calculate their out-of-pocket costs for any given procedure. And an estimated 20 hospitals across six states have been attacked by Russian-based ransomware attacks in the past two weeks. And more attacks are likely, according to the FBI and other federal agencies. Ed Roach is going to give us a special report in a few minutes on these ransomware attacks, but it's enough to say that during these attacks, hospitals may be forced to use paper-based manual processes, and in some cases, these attacks may stop necessary surgeries and procedures. The FBI and other federal agencies released an alert last week stating that they have, quote, credible information of an increased and imminent cybercrime threat to U.S. hospitals. The alert includes the most recent coding that the attackers, attackers are using and recommends that hospitals have plans in place in case of cyber attacks so they can continue operating without computers. And finally, the presidential election is tomorrow. Though a large number of U.S. voters, 95 million as of Sunday night, have already voted by mail-in ballots or through early voting stations. So, Chuck, if you're looking for a silver lining to this year and our currently po- current political environment, it is estimated that nearly 160 million Americans will vote in this election, the most ever, and at a percentage of total eligible voters that surpasses any other election in the past century. This is even more surprising, given that we are in another spike of a dangerous pandemic. 
So silver lining, an eager, active electorate is something this country can be proud of. Back to you, Chuck. Indeed it is, Matthew. Thank you very much. That was former CMS official Matthew Albright. Matthew is the Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous. And just as COVID cases are spiking, hospitals are facing another crisis that could imperil patient care. That story and more is next. This is Monitor Monday. It's a broadcast service of Rack Monitor. Stand by. In recent months, maintaining strict regulatory compliance has been a challenge, to say the least. A variety of factors, from a deluge of regulatory news to the ongoing impact of COVID-19, make it feel like navigating turbulent waters. Now more than ever, you need to make sure everyone on your team, including those who work remotely, are following the same guidance and moving in the same direction. A subscription to Rack Monitor Compliance webcasts is your port in the storm. For a single money-saving fee, your entire team can access the full library of exclusive Rack Monitor educational webcasts featuring nationally acclaimed compliance and audit experts. Here's the best part. You can take a complimentary three-day trial by visiting the portal page at Rack University. The Treasury Department is warning hospitals that paying off ransomware demands might be subject to civil monetary penalties, even when they are the victims of a crime. Reporting our latest story this morning is Rack Monitor investigative reporter Ed Roach. He's been reporting on ransomware for Rack Monitor since 2017. So, Ed, this really does sound like double jeopardy. Yeah, or even triple jeopardy when you look at uh, all the possible damages. You know, you have the uh, insurance cost, you have the cost of recovery, you have the possible damages from class action suits, from lose, you know, from loss of privacy, uh, and then you have the uh, recovery costs, which are very, very high. Let me get into that a little bit. You know, ransomware, it freezes all the records purchasing, patient records, payroll, interorganizational systems, all of it. You cannot provide any services. Patients get harmed. Ransomware enters the information system through phishing, which is the embedding of malicious software code in forged emails. They look like, you know, they come from a friend. There was a 37% increase in ransomware last year, but losses went up 150%. By the end of this year, it's estimated around 140 hospitals will have their systems crippled. What do they do? Well, hire an army of expensive IT consultants to get the system back up and running. How expensive? Well, $2,000 an hour per consultant, another million down the drain. Restore records, rebuild the databases, re-verify security, notification to persons whose data may have been exposed, explosion and third-party liability, public relations disaster. Then you have to pay off the extortionist to get the decryption key. Whether to pay or not to pay may euphemistically be called a business decision. Is the cost of paying less than the cost to rebuild a system from scratch? The University of California, San Francisco Medical School just paid out $1.14 million in ransomware. But here's the rub. In October, the Office of Foreign Assets Control, part of the Treasury, issued an advisory on ransomware. There are potential sanctions risk for facilitating ransomware payments. Sanctions. The United States uses sanctions against some nations in order to influence their behavior. For example, there are sanctions against Iran to stop it from building thermonuclear weapons. If you trade with Iran or send money, you violate the law. 
Treasury specifically warned that entities, including hospitals, paying off ransomware extortion demands might be subject to civil monetary penalties under the International Emergency Economic Powers Act. Section 1705B of the Act reads, a civil penalty may be imposed in an amount not to exceed the greater of $250,000 or an amount that is twice the amount of the payoff. Treasury warned that hospitals can violate the Act even if they are victim of ransomware. Not every hospital has a cryptocurrency account standing by to make payments to thugs. No problem. Hire more consultants, enablers, familiar with how to make extortion payments. They set up the cryptocurrency account, make sure the payment goes through, all for a little handling fee, of course. Would using a third-party enabler mean lessening of liability for the hospital, providing it can plausibly deny any knowledge of the transaction? No can do. The penalties are imposed with strict liability. Any hospital making the payment is liable under the Act, even if it has no knowledge of the identity of the foreign actor and no intent to violate U.S. law. Bottom line, purchase cyber liability insurance and lobby for reform of the Act to exempt hospitals from civil monetary penalties. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Ed, very much. That was Rack Monitor and Investigative Reporter Ed Roach. Ed is the Director of Scientific Research at Barraclue, New York, LLC. And now's the time for the results of today's Monitor Monday listener survey. Once more, here is Alan Fink-Samnick. This week's Monitor Monday survey asks, if you could advocate with CMS who approved one of the following ICD-10 CMZ codes for comorbidity payment, which would you choose? It seems homelessness still tops the list at 31% of our listeners today, followed closely behind by problems related to living alone, followed by ooh, lack of adequate food and safe drinking water. Interesting choice, D59.4, and then finally low income. And we will continue to see how this one evolves. Back to you, Chuck. Now's the time for our Monday Q&A, and David, let's take a look at some of the questions that have been coming in this morning. So, Nicole, we've got a couple of people who are, have questions for you. Can you offer where you've got the reference for the definition of medical necessity? Yes, sir. The first definition I gave was Black's Law Dictionary, which is kind of the Bible for lawyers on defining terms. And that definition is the one that I do not find as helpful other definition is the definition by the American Medical Association, and it is on their website, and their definition of medical necessity is much more in-depth and has more detail, although, like I said, neither of them contemplate COVID. And Ron, you called my attention to a proposed rule I was unaware of. Yes, actually, CMS has proposed to change the definition of reasonable and necessary. A lot of it is about getting um, payment approved for new breakthrough devices, but it's worth reading. And that you could go to regulations.gov and look up CMS 3372P. And the comment period ends today. Uh, so that's certainly timely. Chuck, I will turn it back to you to wrap us up. Thanks very much. And that's going to be a wrap for this live edition of Monitor Monday. And we thank you so very much for being with us today. Special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Matthew Albright, Nicole Emanuel, Alan Fink-Sandvik, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and our special guest this morning, Rack Monitor Investigator Reporter Ed Roach. And we thank you again for being with us. And when we're not on the air, you can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and when you do, rate us and give us a review. 
Until next Monday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Remember to wear a face mask, wash your hands, and practice social distancing. It's very dangerous out there. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.